0: The following resources from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all if you feel led to give towards the ministry of lookout mountain presbyterian church we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org slash give stands for a reading from deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 15 through 31 therefore watch yourselves very carefully Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars all the hosts of heaven you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them things that the lord your god has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven but the lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace out of egypt to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day furthermore The Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and children's children, and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, that you will soon utterly perish from the lands that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in tribulation, And all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. This is the word of
1: the Lord. Please be seated. I'll add my welcome to that of Wills this morning. My name is Frank Hitchings. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are glad that y'all are here this morning, worshiping with us, starting your week off, worshiping, and pray his blessings on our time this morning as we do just that, as we open his word and try to learn of him and learn of ourselves. So uh, before we do that, let's pray. Father, you have made it crystal clear that your word is living and active, that it can penetrate our hearts. There's so much that you say about your word in your word. We're thankful, Lord, for what you said through Isaiah, that it never returns to you void, that it always accomplishes the purposes for which you sent it. And we pray you would use it this morning, Lord, as we continue our study in Deuteronomy. Use it to change us deep inside, Lord, to grow us in grace, to Deepen us in faith and repentance that through the miracle of your grace, we might live lives to your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Indeed, we uh, continue our study this morning in Deuteronomy, picking up in the second half of chapter 4 and dealing with a subject that's found through this, throughout the Scriptures. Do you know what sin is? the Bible speaks of from Genesis to Revelation what sin the Bible speaks of more than any other it's this one it's idolatry the sin that we see this morning and Moses is here calling the people of God back in his day and in our day to guard our hearts from idolatry but you know right at the beginning the question is what does that mean what is, what is an idol really what is idolatry when you, when you think about it, when we tend to think about it, we think like Webster's first definition. His first de- definition in the dictionary is this, a representation of a deity used as an object of worship. That's what we tend to think about. But the second definition that Webster's gives is this, an object of passionate devotion or a false god, an object of passionate devotion or a false God. We might even say an object of passionate devotion instead of God or over God. Well, in our day, I think it's significant because most of us, like if you think of the last time, when was the last time you used the word idol or idolatry? It's kind of outdated, right? We almost don't use it at all. We tend to think of people who actually bow down uh, to statues made by human hands, to real physical idols. Uh, remember, back in 2007, I went with uh, Hugh o. McClellan and Daryl Heald and some others to India and had my eyes opened wide to idolatry in a way that I'd never seen it before. But but in a way that's common for us to think. But the Bible speaks of it much differently. The Bible doesn't speak of idolatry really as being something that's external. Rather, it's something that's internal. The Bible speaks of idolatry as being a heart problem first and foremost. I'm going to mention a lot of different verses as we go through uh, this passage today, tying it to other passages in Scripture. But if you're taking notes, write down this simple verse, Ezekiel 14:3. In Ezekiel 14, God's indicting His people for their unfaithfulness. He's indicting the nation of Israel, and this is what He says. He says, these people have set up idols in their hearts. He doesn't say they've set up idols in their living rooms. They've set up idols in their hearts. He's essentially saying that their rejection of him is not simply a matter of these physical idols fashioned by the hands of men, but it's a matter of something that happens in the heart first and foremost. It's clear, the Bible says, Internalizes idolatry. And one of the ways that that's most powerfully captured for us really is when you read all the way through the Bible and you get to the Pauline epistles. Paul, listen to what Paul says. This is Ephesians 5. Paul says this Of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, and then like parentheses, for such a man is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. He's saying immorality is really rooted in idolatry. Greed is really rooted in idolatry. He says something very similar in Colossians. He talks about since you've been raised with Christ, right? Set your hearts on things above. And then he goes on and says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And he starts listing things. Again, sexual immorality, impurity, lust evil desires and greed which is idolatry because of these things the wrath of god is coming it's clear that the scripture speaks of idolatry as being the root under many of our sins it internalizes the issue of idolatry it says it's in the human heart and unfortunately our tendency our tendency towards idolatry doesn't magically disappear when we come to faith in Christ the struggle maybe is identified but it doesn't magically disappear John Calvin said that our hearts are perpetual idol factories perpetual idol factories he said we mass produce them my kids were little we went to the place that we said that uh, the bad people go when they die which is Chuck E Cheese (laughs) right and remember all those games and all those tickets and whack-a-mole game? Remember whack-a-mole? Like as soon as you hit one of the idols, another one pops up. That's what our lives are like. Well, Moses is addressing it this morning. He's calling us to guard our hearts from idols. And first we'll see in the outline, God's covenant people are called to constant watchfulness because of our idolatrous tendencies. Look at verse 15 and we'll just read the first section here. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that's on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air. The likeness of anything that creeps on the ground. The likeness of any fish that's in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to the heavens. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven. You be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are to this day. And then he goes on, and again he goes back to this this theme he's been on several times. He says, furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you. And he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land, I must not go over the Jordan, but you. You. You shall go over and take possession of that good land. And here it is again. Take care. Lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God. Which he has made with you. And and make a carved image. The form of anything. Again look at this. That the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. A jealous God. Well. At the outset, let me just say, there's no way we have time to unpack all these verses. But we don't want to miss Moses' main point. What he's doing is he's warning the people of God, he's warning the people of God in his day and in our day of the dangers of idolatry, but also of the ease with which we can fall into idolatry. What he's saying is, once the people of God, once you enter the promised land, idols are going to be a constant temptation and he's saying that those idols that you'll be tempted to worship are totally inadequate and misleading and they're forbidden. He's saying don't forget. Think about it. They're inadequate in that, in that God is far too majestic and far too, too transcendent to be crudely represented by some man-made piece of wood or metal or stone. He, he even says in verse 15, he said, when the Lord spoke to you, you didn't see any form of him. Any attempt to make an object that you can worship or an object that can help you worship, he said it's bound to be inadequate. But it's not just inadequate, it's misleading too. It, it feeds our minds uh, information about God that's not true. God alone is sovereign over all this creation. God alone controls all things. And yet sometimes in their day and in our day, people have idols. They make idols to try to somehow manipulate and control God and get the outcome they want. So he's saying idols teach us false things about God. And lastly, he's just saying it's strictly forbidden, right? The second commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt have no other objects or people of passionate devotion above me. In just a a couple of chapters, we're going to come to one of the clearest calls for this watchfulness. Uh, Chapter 6, verses 10 through 15. Uh, This is in another one of Moses' sermons as the people are standing ready to enter the promised land. This is what he says then. He says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you, A land with large flourishing cities that you did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide. Wells you did not dig. And vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God and serve him only Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you, the gods of the culture in which you live. What's he saying? He's saying that, that we as the people of God have a tendency to forget the Lord, to forget all that He's done for us, especially when things are going well. Isn't that true? Especially when things are going well. And he repeats it over. He says, watch out. Watch carefully. Beware take care. He, he's suggesting just how easy it is especially when things are good to fall into that trap. How easy it is to forget that God has covenanted with us all the way back in Genesis with Abraham to be God to us and our descendants after us. It's easy to forget that God's redeemed us. Not just, not just rescued Uh, the, the, uh, the Israelites from bondage in Egypt but he's redeemed us from sin through Christ's death and resurrection he's blessed us Paul would say with every spiritual blessing in Christ and with innumerable physical blessings so beware beware it's easy to forget all that God's done for us all he's committed to do in us how can it be that we can be looking and hoping for something else in creation to satisfy our hearts, which, which never does satisfy our hearts? I was reading this, I was reading kind of widely this week. I was reading a, a book from Banner of Truth Trust that's uh, uh, written by Thomas Watson. If you have a brain like mine that just likes, just, like, just can't, I need points, right? I got to have points. Thomas Watson's the greatest at that. He wrote this book in 1652 called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And he says one of Satan's defective, most effective devices to draw our souls to sin is to what he says is to present the bait but hide the hook. To present the golden cup but hide the poison in the cup. I'm going, to co- I'm going to quote him again a little bit later, but, but I was reading also a modern author, uh, Andy Crouch, and he speaks this, uh, he says this about idols. He says, All idols begin by offering great things to us for a very small price. All idols fail more and more consistently to deliver on those original promises while they ratchet up their demands for worship and sacrifice, demands that initially seemed so reasonable. And in the end, they fail completely. You know, 2012, 1652, same message. Idols ask for more and more. They give less and less until they eventually demand everything and give nothing. I'll say it again. Idols ask for more and more while giving less and less until eventually they demand everything and give nothing. So for us, we have to answer that basic question that God poses to, to each of us, to our, to our hearts. Has something or someone besides Jesus taken title to our hearts' trust and preoccupation and loyalty and service? How do we discover our idols? How do we discover what they are? Well, it starts with a willingness to, to ask and answer tough questions like, to whom do I really count on for security in life? To whom or what do I look for, for acceptance? What is it that I think I've just got to have if life is going to be okay? A long time ago, 20 years ago or so, I uh, came across a, a very helpful uh, series of materials on identifying idols of our hearts. And, uh, and I went and dug it out this week. and actually... Made copies of it, and the copies are out in the lobby on the uh, little table out in the middle of the lobby. If you want one afterwards, but this is put together from uh, uh, Tim Keller's study on Romans in a fellow named Hannibal Silver, uh, who got his doctorate of ministry at Westminster Seminary in the mid '90s. And it starts with this with this lead kind of tagline. It says, "Life only has meaning. I only have worth if." And then it just lists things that we can turn into idols oftentimes good things life only has meaning i only have worth if i'm loved and respected by so and so that's a approval idol life only has meaning i only have worth if people are dependent on me and really need me that's a helping idol he just goes on and on one that that I certainly struggle with. Life only has meaning, only have worth if I'm highly productive getting a lot done. How many of y'all have productivity idols? Like if you don't get a lot done when you go home, family doesn't want to be around you. Life only has meaning, only have purpose. I only have worth if I'm recognized for my accomplishments, achievement idol. But it goes even past that. It has lots of them here, but it even goes past that to negative emotions. Like if you're angry, ask yourself Is there something that's too important to me? Is there something I'm telling myself I have to have or life's not okay? Is that why I'm angry? Because I'm being blocked from having something I think is an absolute necessity in life when it's just not? It's so helpful to ask those questions, to read those statements, to realize, uh, to start to realize whether we're really pursuing God and finding life and meaning and purpose in our relationship with Him or other objects of passionate devotion in our lives. Whether we're really looking to Jesus to fulfill us, to give our lives meaning and purpose, or are we looking elsewhere to find that fulfillment and meaning and purpose? It's been said we usually don't realize it's an idol until we lose it or until it's threatened. If we look at our lives, that's so true. So the warning, again, if you're going to write down one verse from this week, the warning of of Jonah, chapter 2, verse 8, is simply this. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. That's worth memorizing right there. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Moses is calling God's covenant people. He's calling us to constant watchfulness because of our idolatrous tendencies. He's also giving clear warnings about the consequences of our idolatry. Look at verse 25. We'll read down through verse 28. He says, When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land... If you act corruptly corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger I call heaven and earth to witness against you that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess you will not live long in it but will be utterly destroyed And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve other gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. Here in these verses, he's shifting his focus to the distant future, and he starts with this tone of kind of gloom and doom, you would say. That'd be accurate. Here are the consequences, the awful consequences, he's saying, of abandoning the living God and seeking passionate pursuit of something else to satisfy our hearts. And what he's envisioning is their descent into idolatry after they enter the land, after they're well-established in the land and in those cities and in those houses and enjoying those vineyards that they didn't plant. Remember the warning. Be careful when you're in those days of prosperity that you... Don't forget the Lord your God. And what he's saying is this, if idolatry is really what you want, fine, you can have it, but you won't have it in the promised land. I love what uh, Raymond Brown points out in his commentary. He says, idolatry is the worst possible misuse of these two great blessings of the law of God and the promised land. He said, God warned them that if they worshipped other gods, they'd forfeit their right to live in the promised land, and and if you think of of Moses, like there's very few passages that are are this direct uh, and and uh, and really scary. Moses says, "You'll utterly perish from the land. If you do this, you will not live long in the land, but be utterly destroyed and scattered among the peoples, left few in number." and you will serve gods of wood and stone. And then he's almost making fun of those, like gods that can't see or hear or eat or smell. It's really strong language. Moses is saying to the people of God, as they stand there ready to enter the promised land, he's saying, you've got a choice to make. Honor the law and enjoy the favor of God and live long in the land, or disregard it and experience the anger of God. Keep the law and become a great nation, or reject it and become a scattered people among other nations. He's saying you've got a choice. And, and later generations would actually make the wrong choice and be carried off into exile. So, how does that imply to us? <clears throat> how does it apply to us? Real brief, briefly, I would say this our God hasn't changed, He hasn't changed. There is a cost to following worthless idols. There is a cost to pursuing with passion things other than God, things that we think functionally are more important than God. There's a cost. We forfeit the grace that could be ours. God, He will be patient with us. We're told He's a patient God. He'll let us run after those things. But at some point, He'll say no more and He'll discipline us, just like He did His people in Deuteronomy. He'll discipline us because he loves us, because he's a jealous God, he says. Jealousy, not in the sense that we think of human jealousy, but jealousy in the sense of he's got an active passion for righteousness because he's holy, and he loves us, and he won't let us pursue foreign gods, as it were, God's substitutes forever. Again, Raymond Brown said this, (coughs) God's threatened judgment, you know, we kind of we great at that. He says God's threatened judgment and casting them out of the land for their idolatry is not an act of vindictive punishment. It's an expression of his refining love. He disciplines those he loves. He knows that in our prosperity, just like the Israelites in his day, in our prosperity we'll be tempted to forget God and pursue other things. He says I love you too much. I'm not going to let you go. So he gives clear warnings here about the consequences of idolatry. And then lastly, I want you to see God's covenant people are promised compassionate welcome upon repentance of our idolatry. Look at the shift in verse 29 to the end. But from there, right, they've been scattered among the nations, there are left few among the nations. Uh, But from there, that place of despair, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you're in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you'll return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. I love that his tone just changes here at the end it goes from these warnings this warnings of doom if they continue to uh, to pursue idols he changes from the tone of doom to one of hopefulness he says but from there but from there meaning the place of despair the place of ruin that idolatry always leads us to but from there but from that place of tribulation he says Basically, said says this, when you've had your fill of chasing other gods to try to fulfill you, when you've had your fill and you've found them empty and life-taking, not life-giving, then you return to the living God and He will compassionately welcome you because He's a God of mercy. That's the good news. Verse 31 says, the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you. He will not forget his gracious covenant. Remember in verse twenty three, Moses said this, he said, Find verse twenty three, Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God. He's he's basically saying, Be really careful. It's easy to forget the covenant. And here he's saying, But God will never forget his covenant. He's a God of mercy. He'll compassionately welcome us back when we repent of our idols. We have a merciful, heavenly Father. That's so true. And yet, even in that, even in considering the mercy of our God, there's a danger. I'll go back to Thomas Watson. He warns us that another of Satan's devices to entice us to sin, this is what he says, another is to present God to the soul... As one made up all of mercy. See what he's saying? To present God to our souls as a God who's made up totally of mercy. And then he, and then he quotes this, kind of like C.S. Lewis in the Tape Letters, but he says, Oh, saith Satan, you need not make much of sin. You need not be so fearful of sin, not so unwilling to sin. For God is a God of mercy a god full of mercy a god that delights in mercy a god that's never weary of showing mercy a god more prone to pardon his people than to punish them therefore why should you make such a matter of sin he's right and it it's easy to be thinking god's a god of grace and mercy i'll be okay it doesn't matter moses says it matters Moses says it matters so much. He, it's one of the reasons he keeps going back to, I don't get to go to the promised land because of my sin. It matters. God's merciful, but he's just and holy also. Moses is encouraging the people in his day and our day to guard our hearts against thinking and presuming on the mercy of God. But the reality of it is that if you're in Christ here this morning, you have a merciful Heavenly Father. I'll close with a story written by Ernest Hemingway, a short story that clearly displays some of the difficulties that characterize relationships between fathers and sons. Uh, The story is entitled, The Capital of the World. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's not one of his more famous ones. The capital of the world, it revolves around a father and his teenage son named Paco, and it's set in Spain in the 1930s. In the 1930s, Paco was a very common name in Spain. And Paco's desire was to get out from under the influence of his dad and go to the big city and become a matador. So he rebels against his father and he runs away. He runs to the capital of Spain, which is Madrid, which to him is the capital of the world. And his father was desperate to reconcile with his son. His father finds out he's in Madrid and he follows him to Madrid and he puts an ad in the newspaper, a a page-long ad in the newspaper, the local newspaper, with this simple message. The message is, Dear Paco, Meet me in front of the Madrid newspaper office, office tomorrow at noon all is forgiven, I love you, your dad. It's a short story, people. (laughs) Hemingway then writes, in the next paragraph, he says this, the next day at noon, in front of the newspaper office, there were 800 Pacos, all seeking forgiveness. It's a great story. The world is full of people in need of forgiveness. Even we as God's people whose hearts have been changed are still in need of forgiveness. We're in need of reconciliation and the model for forgiveness for fatherly love like that only comes from our welcoming, compassionate Heavenly Father and it comes through Jesus. That's how much He loves us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the truths that we studied this morning in Moses' ancient writings. And we ask, Lord, that you would help each one of us to to honestly and deeply search our own hearts with the help of your Spirit. Lord, that we might see if there's something or someone that's functionally become a substitute for you in our lives. If there's something other than you that we think we absolutely have to have if life's going to be okay. We thank you, Lord, for your pursuing grace, for the reality, Lord, that you're not just holy and just, but you're merciful and gracious, and you welcome us home when we return to you. Indeed, Lord, your love is like no other, a love that constantly pursues, a love that never lets go of us. So we ask, Lord, that you'd help us to find all that we need in life in our relationship with you, and we ask it in Christ's name, amen. Amen.